Hello and welcome back for a special one-off episode of Live from the Spaceship, a podcast all about space and science hosted by me, John Spooner, Director of Human Spaceflight Operations at the Unlimited Space Agency. As many of you will know, our mission is to inspire the next generation of poet scientists and space explorers by telling stories and talking to some of the coolest people working in space and science right now. My co-host, best friend and UNSA's first astronaut, Mini John, he isn't with me today. Sorry about that, but as like all the other eight-year-olds in the UK right now, he's back at school for the time being. But he will be joining me for a new mini-series all about the future on our YouTube channel. Just search us up there, Unlimited Space Agency on YouTube. If this is your first time with us, then welcome, and you can check out all our activities, videos, latest news at our website, unspaceagency.earth, or by following us on any of the socials where we are at unspaceagency on, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're releasing this special episode for International Podcast Day, which is nearly the anniversary of my original In the World interview with Apollo 15 astronaut and all-round legend Al Warden, who sadly passed away earlier this year. 2020 is really pulling no punches, right? I interviewed Al when the space shed landed at New Scientist Live in October 2019, and honestly, I was pretty giddy not only getting to meet but to spend some dedicated time with a human who had not only left our planet earth but had traveled nearly 400,000 kilometers to the moon then spending three days orbiting it on his own while his crewmates were on the surface of the moon before picking up his crewmates flying the 400,000 kilometers back home and on the way home went outside the spaceship he was piloting to perform what is still the deepest space spacewalk that anyone has ever undertaken. Al is famously quoted as saying, Flying to the moon is just a skill that can be learned. The greatest challenge is how you live your life and what good you can do along the way. He really did live a good life. And so I am super excited to share this conversation with you in which Al and I talk about his astronaut training, his Guinness World Record, his favourite sci-fi films, his relationships with other Apollo astronauts and why at 87 years old he still considered himself the best crew member for a mission to Mars. And of course he answers questions from the New Scientist Live audience in the room. As you'll hear, Al also has one of the most excellent laughs of any human ever. We record all these interviews live, and on this occasion, the recording levels were quite hot for the first minute or so, so the sound quality is a bit shaky for the very beginning. Stick with it, though. It all gets better very quickly. Okay, let's get into it. Enjoy this episode of Live from the Space Shed with Apollo 15 Command Module Pilot Al Warden. Scientist Live! Yay! Welcome to Answers HQ, the Space Shed! Come on, give it up for the Space Shed! How many... This is literally just been awarded shed of the year even cooler than that this afternoon i know why you're here you're not here to see me running around in an orange spacesuit. uh the reason you're all here would you please give a massive new scientist live welcome to apollo 15 astronaut our warden hi john 
come in. <laughs> it's Make, loud. It is loud. <laughs> they want to hear you. Take okay. a seat. Take a seat. Make yourself comfortable. All right. Me, Shedder. Yes, yes, Me yes. Me too, yes, Shedder. Yes, 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 yes. Um, all right. A couple more. I left. saw all that stuff out here. Yeah, that's what you did on your way to the Saturn V, right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you bet. We basically just... We didn't have all the smoke, though. <laughs> Not until you actually took off. Yeah. Um, hey. Yeah. You've actually been in a rocket and flown to the moon, piloting the capsule on your own around the moon on Apollo Correct. 15 for how long? 13 days. We're at the moon six days. And you've been described as the loneliest human ever. Was it lonely out I there? Got, I was uh, giving a talk in Oxford. And after I finished the talk, a guy from Guinness came up on stage and he said, I have a certificate for you. It's for being the most isolated human in history. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Uh, I could think of other guys who've been there too, but uh, I got the certificate. But I, he's from Guinness, right? Uh-huh. Take it. To hell with the certificate. Where's the beer? <laughs> <laughs> Um, we were talking earlier. He brought the beer the next night, yeah. by the way. Well, this, is, this is what I really love about your space cowboys, really. Yeah. This is, I mean, you are a highly trained fighter pilot, but you had fun doing it, right? Oh, of course. That's, that was the love of my life, flying. What was the training like? When you were hanging out with all those Apollo guys, if I were wanting to actually go to the moon, and that is my plan. Um, well, you know, it's like anything. It's like being on an athletic team. They practice five days a week. Very, very tough. Hard practice. Then when they play on Saturday, all you see is them playing a game. You watch the TV and it, it's like, oh my God, that would be so much fun to do. But they don't understand the five days that you put in now. Okay, for our flight, we train three years on an average of 70 hours a week. And, 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 and the funny part of it is, if something happens and you can't make the flight, that's three years down the drain. That actually happened to a guy at Apollo 13. Yes. Ken Manigley was suspected of having the measles three days before the flight. They took him off and put his back up in. He was very fortunate. He got out of Apollo 16 later on. But that's the kind of thing you face in the program. When other astronauts I've spoken to, I speak to astronauts all the time, <laughs> I know that you often get asked, is it scary? And the answer that I've had is, the scariest thing is the idea that I might not end up going for those random reasons. Well, yeah, well, yeah I think that's the scariest thing. The fact that you might not come back is not scary. Because there's uh, things bigger than us, okay? We're doing it for the country. We're doing it for human beings. We're doing it for mankind. So whether I come back or not is kind of a, you know, nobody worries about that. Well, we're glad that you but, did. But we did worry about not making a flight. You're right. You were all friends. Sadly, there's just we just heard, well, you just told me, the news today that a friend of yours, Alexei Leonov, sadly passed away today. Alexei was a good friend. Sadly, he passed away today. He will always be remembered in the history books as the very first human who did a spacewalk or extravehicular activity back in the day. That was a very pivotal moment uh, for a lot of the space program. And Alexei was there. And he's turned into a, he turned into a really, really super nice guy. I don't know what anybody knows, but he was really a good painter. He, did, he painted a lot of pictures, and they're very, very good. Used to see Alexei once every year when we all got together. That's the funny thing about it. I don't understand why we do things the way we do them in the world today. There's a big meeting coming up next week, which Alexei would be at if he were still alive. There's a big meeting of all the people who've been in space from around the world. We'll have astronauts, cosmonauts, taikonauts, everybody. There'll be a couple hundred of them there. You should come. We'll have a couple hundred take of them that there. As an invite. But the fun part is we're all big buddies. But the U.S. 
is not friendly with Russia, and the U.S. is not friendly with China, and Russia is not friendly with China. Governments go one way, but the people, people the people, if I'm looking at you right in the eye, you're my friend, okay? Governments don't see it that way. So I just wish governments could do like we do with the Association of Space Explorers, and we could all be friends. Because when we get together, we do what fighter pilots always do. I think that's a really beautiful thing, right? We could do with a little bit of that in the world yeah. right now. The idea of, yeah. What is it that creates that sense of bonding, friendship, brotherhood? Well, I think, it's, I think it's a shared experience. I think anybody who goes into space, nobody else has ever done that. And so I think you have a unique experience that relates to what all those others have done, which brings us together. You know, fighter pilots are the same way. I, 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 I know I flew fighter airplanes for many, many years before I got into the space program. And it's the same thing. You can meet a fighter pilot from somewhere and you become buddies instantly. That doesn't happen government to government. We were talking before as well about our favorite sci-fi films. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Yours, yours is... <laughs> Odyssey, 2001, Space Odyssey. I thought that was the best movie that's ever been made. Yeah, and your second favorite. We were talking because I was describing Space Cowboys. You said that's a really good film. Well, yeah. I've not seen see, it, but I'm going to go watch what, it tonight. See, I can relate to Space Cowboys because I'm that age now. <laughs> uh, and, and, I, and, and I loved watching a movie. It's a big, big kick up on the whole program, right? You, there's no way you could train a crew in a month. No way, no way. But they did. And they've all been out of it for 30 or 40 years. But all of a sudden they're back in and in a month they're ready to go. But there's one scene I love. And if you see the movie, there's one scene in Space Cowboys where they're standing in the entrance to the admin building at the uh, Lyndon Johnson Space Center talking to guys on the crew. And over Clint Eastward's shoulder on the wall... Is my crew patch. It, how cool is that? It's really how cool. How cool is that? That, that was really nice. <laughs> I loved it. Um, so cool. Uh, my favorite, I would say, is Armageddon. Literally the seventh best film ever made. And it's like Space Cowboys. There's no real science in that. It's really stupid. But it's such good fun. Um, and that's what I like about it. 2000 well, yeah, 2001, a, obviously everyone's favorite. It's, it's a very fun, stupid movie. Yeah, yeah. Hands up, anyone else who thinks that Armageddon is the seventh best film ever made? <laughs> <laughs> One like out of a hundred. <laughs> um, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, look, this really is your opportunity. We have maybe like 20 minutes with Al today. Our flight controller here has got a microphone they can bring to you. Who would like to ask... Our warden, Apollo 15 astronaut. <laughs> Hi. I was always intrigued to know the opinion of you guys if we didn't have the space shuttle, if we'd not gone that direction. Where would the space program be at this point? Uh, that's a good question. Um, we got into the space program for a lot of reasons financial, technical, political, all kinds of things. Uh, I think there's another reason we got out of the Apollo program, and that's because we'd had six successful flights. And what could happen? If you lost one, those six you might as well forget. So I think that was a little part of the thinking, too. We retrenched from going to the moon and went into Earth orbit. It's kind of interesting. If you build a shuttle, why do you call it a shuttle? Well, it's got a shuttle from one place to another, right? So what's at the other end that they're going to shuttle to? Well, now we got to build a space station. Okay, now we got a shuttle that goes from Earth to the space station and back again. I hate to tell you my opinion of the shuttle, 
But to answer your question, we'd be 30 years ahead if we hadn't had the shuttle. I think we'd be probably on Mars by now. We'd be on Mars. Wow. I think so. Because would have changed the focus from low Earth orbit to going back well, to deep space sooner. The the focus shifted from exploring to Earth science. I think the space station has done a magnificent job with the science. Whether it's worth what we paid for it or not, I don't know. We got a hundred billion dollars in the space station. And whether it's worth that kind of money or not, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, if I were to tell you how much my spacesuit costs, I think you could have the same conversation. Um, well, mine, John, mine yeah. costs $250,000. Yeah, all right. <laughs> well done. <laughs> that, what, how much did this cost? Well, I'm not going to say now, am I? Because it's like, <laughs> I thought it was really cool. And now, I mean, these are, you, can you see those gloves? <laughs> Gardening gloves. <laughs> not as much as you want to come on John. <laughs> but then I don't have to actually go into space in mine <laughs> they're just like the ones we had on the Apollo program <laughs> this is what I wear when I play golf come on <laughs> who, has, who has another small human here hi what's your name and what's your question do people ever say that you've never been to space do people ever say that you've never been to space oh yeah lots of people but some people think I'm still there, so we're even. <laughs> How does it make you feel like when people say that? How, do How does it make you feel when people say that? I think there are a lot of people in the world who don't want to believe anything. There are a lot of people in the world who think we never went to the moon. Okay? Uh, so we have to have an answer to that sort of thing. And when people say, well, you've never, been, you've never been in space, I say, well, look, we had six flights, 18 people that landed on the moon. We got zillions of photographs of the moon. But to me, the, the, the most important thing of all is we were in a Cold War with Russia at the time. They knew every single thing that we did, okay? If we had not gone to the moon, do you not think Russia would let the whole world know? <laughs> I think they would. Plus, which... There were about 400,000 people that worked in the program to build a spacecraft. And I don't think there's enough money in the world to pay off 400,000 people to keep their mouth shut. We were talking about, you, you had some really good friends, best friend being oh, yeah. Dick oh, yeah. Gordon. My best friend was a guy by the name of Dick Gordon. He was the command module pilot on Apollo 12, and he was a backup commander on my flight. Dick and I uh, practically lived together for a year and a half in training. He was the prime command module pilot for Apollo 12, and I was his backup. So we went everywhere together. I have a funny little story. Dick and I, we'd get in a T-38, and we'd go from Houston to L.A. or wherever we had to go. I'd do that. And going, going to L.A., we'd have to stop in El Paso and refuel. So we stopped at El Paso, and the little uh, flight line technician came out, and he opened the canopy, and he's fueling the airplane. And he brings us his taco, and we have a little taco while we're waiting. And we get we get ready to go, and we taxi out to the runway. And as Dick lowered the canopy, it came unhinged at the back. Okay, we can't fly the airplane, so we got to take it back. We take the airplane back, park it, and we grabbed our overnight bag and our parachute. And of course, we always carried our helmet and our and our uh, oxygen mask. So we get in a van. We go over to the commercial terminal, and we get seats on Pacific Southwest Airways. Yes. Oh, yes. PSA from El Paso to 
L.A. Well, they were being very good to us, so they put us in the very front row of first class, right? So Dick and I are sitting there. We got our parachutes on. <laughs> and as the, airplane, this up. as the airplane taxied out to the runway, we put our helmets and our oxygen masks on. <laughs> and that airplane panicked. <laughs> and they wonder, why did you do that? I said, well, just in case we have to bail out. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> take my helmet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, well done. All right, what's next? Yes, what's this? Um, I wonder if you can tell us how well prepared your training left you, ready for the forces of takeoff and in the Saturn V. No, no extreme forces on takeoff. There aren't any extreme forces. The launch vehicle that I went on, Saturn V, weighed about 7 million pounds. Largest and heaviest vehicle ever been launched from the surface of the earth. We were lifted off the ground with five engines that generated about seven and a half million pounds of thrust. So our weight was almost equal to our thrust. When we left the launch pad, we did not know it. We moved so slow. And I'll tell you what the, what the analogy is like. If you drive an automatic transmission car, and you come to a red light, you stop. You put your foot on the brake. Light turns green. Take your foot off the brake and just see what happens. What does it do? Starts creeping. And then it goes a little faster and a little faster. That's how we took off. We were so heavy we could not go into a normal orbit. We went into one at 90 miles instead of 140. It took us 13 and a half minutes to get there by about eight and a half. So the weight was so critical on our on our flight. But we never really got all if you've ever seen movies where the faces distort and all that's bunk. Forget it. Never happens. As we're burning fuel, though, we get lighter. And the thrust is still the same. So we accelerate as we burn fuel. And at the end of the first stage cutoff, we were accelerating at about four and a half times the acceleration due to gravity. About four and a half Gs. But that's at the end. And we're ready. For oh, i got to tell you about that, too. The sequence, when we, when, when we dropped off the first stage, the sequence we were taught was that explosive bolts would release the first stage, then little retro rockets would pull it back, okay? So we wouldn't feel it. What I found out in space what, you know, on my flight was that that was reversed. So when the first stage shut down, the retro rockets fired, and then the explosive bolts released it. So we're going four and a half G's that way, and suddenly one half G the other way. And Jim Irwin and I are sitting there in our seats, and we're, oh, man, God, you know, what's going on? We're trying to stay away from the instrument panel. We both look at Dave and say, Dave, you've been here before. What about that? And he said, oh, gee, guys, I'm sorry I forgot to tell you. <laughs> Do you think he deliberately forgot? He yes, just, I like, do. I'm just messing yes. with them. <laughs> he was he was diabolical. <laughs> <laughs> what was um what was it like on that trip? You were 16 days there, Thir- 13 days all together, six days at the moon. Did you play? Did you play little pranks on each other? Practical jokes? No, I have to tell you that we were probably not the best friends in the world. So we kept our distance. Um, <laughs> kept your distance. Yeah. Well, within. You separated so yourself. This size. About this size. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, Dave and I were not good friends. Uh, we always had a little bit of this going. Uh, but I think that helped us on our flight. From a, 
from an intellectual standpoint, I had <coughs> certain science experiments to do. And we had packed our flight plan pretty full. I did every single thing I had to do because I was not about to let Dave say anything that I didn't do my job. So I think a little bit of tension between crew members is a good thing. Okay. I mean, that's what would be interesting because I know a big part of now the recruitment process for astronauts is about compatibility and how you can yeah. get on. Going to sleep the first night was a very interesting situation. We had sleeping bags that were made out of fishnet. And we could string them up inside the spacecraft, slide in, go to sleep. I, I had uh, shoestrings at the end of each of these. And I tied a paper clip on the end of the shoestring and put it over a, a nut on the bulkhead, another nut down there, stretch it out, slid in, and then a sleeping bag come up to your neck. I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, as I'm falling asleep, my head is doing this. My head is going every which way. It woke me up. I got to thinking about that a little bit. We here on Earth take gravity for granted, and we should not do that. Gravity does everything that we subconsciously rely on. When you go to bed at night, you put your head on a pillow. What keeps it there? Gravity. When you're in space, that doesn't happen. So your head starts to wander. It's got a mind of its own. And I had to put my head inside the sleeping bag, put some restriction on my head, and then I went to sleep. Woke up the next morning with a terrible backache. I think I, you know, scrunched down. Jim and I had the same problem. Looking at Dave. Gee, Dave. You know? We, we didn't think that way. We didn't know anything about that. And Dave said, oh, yeah, well, I forgot to tell you about that. <laughs> so we had that all through the flight. Yeah, well. Yeah. Who else got a question for Al? Young human there, and then we'll come to the slightly older human here. What does it feel like to be in space? Do you mean emotionally? Because you're really excited about asking that question. Mentally and physically. Okay. Uh, it's, a, it's a little hard to describe what it's like in space. The closest I can come to it is... Swimming underwater. Uh, you still got gravity on you, but you got water that kind of buoys you. And in fact, there's a water tank in Houston where they put on their spacesuits and they practice all the things you're going to do in flight. Uh, it's called a neutral buoyancy tank. And that's what they use a lot for the training. Uh, but there's no analog to being in space. There's no real thing. So when you're in space, I, I, I tell young people that the closest I can come is if you swim underwater, it's kind of like that. There you go. Nice and clear, right? Hi. Hi. Um, what advice would you have for anyone who wants to become an astronaut? What's your name? Alex. Alex Alan. here, and he is how old? 17. 17. He's wondering if he wanted to, I think he might want to become an astronaut now, what advice would you give? Can I be able to tell jokes? <laughs> uh, I... Um, I take a little different approach to it, Alan. Uh, I don't think that anybody should, at the age of 17, decide that the only thing in the world for them is to be an astronaut. And I'll tell you why. The odds of being selected in a program, a space program, are pretty thin. I don't know whether you know about the last selection or not. There were 18,000 applicants that were qualified and they picked 12 people. This was at NASA. So you're, yeah. yeah. So you're, you know, the odds are pretty. When I went in, there were 830 qualified 
test pilots with flying time under the age limit, pass the physical, do all that kind of stuff. There were 830 that were qualified. And they, and they picked 19 of us. That's, that's less than 2%. So what I'm, I, I guess my attitude about that is do in school whatever you love to do. Don't deviate. Don't go into something that you don't like because you're not going to do well in it if you don't like it. But if you take something that you really love and you follow it through, at the end of that track, you might find other doors open that take you where you want to go. Okay? That's what happened to me. I never thought about being an astronaut. That was not on my, that was not on my schedule at all. And, 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 and the reason was I kind of understood that I have lots and lots of applicants and your chances of getting in are going to be pretty small. Okay? So I dedicated my life to being the best pilot I could be. I, I, I ended up teaching in a test pilot school. I came to England to go through the Empire Test Pilot School. I, did, I, I graduated from there. Uh, years and years when they were in Farnborough. Uh, back when Farnborough was Farnborough. It's not Farnborough anymore. It's BAE. I don't know. Come on. Anyway, but I decided I was going to be the best pilot I could be. To be the best pilot, I had to go back to college and get master's degrees in aeronautical, astronautical, and instrumentation engineering. Got three master's degrees. From there, I was selected to go to the Empire Test Pilot School, so I got the test pilot training behind me. I'm going in a direction that says, hey, I'm going to live my life as a test pilot. But all of a sudden, while I'm teaching at Edwards, NASA had a selection program. And I said, got nothing to lose. Throw my name in. And got selected. That's, that's the kind of thing you can expect. What are you passionate about, Alex? Physics. Physics is a good Physics, routine. Perfect, perfect background. Along with math. Yeah. Well... You can't study physics without math. <laughs> it's all math. <laughs> you've got another NASA, ex-NASA astronaut, uh, Don Thomas, who flew four missions on the space shuttle, is at the other end of this hall. Oh, you're talking about Don? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Don's he's a good friend. he's a physicist, an engineer. Go and talk to him about his route through as well. Just in case you didn't know that Don was here, he's just down there standing yeah, yeah, answering yeah, yeah. questions. Yeah. Go and see him. Yeah. Um, great advice. Follow your passion. I never believed right. that I would be able to achieve this as my career. Yeah. I know. Um, we've got time for at least one more question. Hi. After 13 days in space, what does it feel like to be back to on Earth? Did you hear that one? After 13 days in space, what was it like to, what did it feel like to come back to Earth? Well, it was kind of interesting. Um, we lived in that small can for 13 days. Incidentally, that thing is about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. So you got three three people have to live in there, twenty four seven. You got to do everything that you got to do in that twenty four seven, and some of it is not very nice. I have to tell you, but when that hatch opens and we're sitting on the Pacific, you get the first big lungful of Pacific air, and it's just like, man, I'm in heaven. It's wonderful. But in the weeks after that, I'm in briefings ten hours a day for two weeks. And I'm thinking while I'm in there, God, I wish I was back in space. Because it's so quiet and peaceful up there. And you don't have to talk to anybody if you don't want to. So that's a good thing. <laughs> Get away from everyone. Good answer, right? You were talk- we were talking as well earlier about films again, but gravity, how- what terrible film gravity is uh, in terms oh, of... Oh, yeah. But um, the thing that I like about it is that idea that the sense of coming home, the relief. The How many people have seen Gravity? 
Oh, a lot of you. Okay, I have a question for you. <laughs> At the end, was she dead or alive? Let's say, Anybody ever hand. think about that? Show of hands. Who has anyone ever even thought? There's a load of people going. I hadn't even thought of that. Who thought she was alive? I mean, I did. Okay. Anyone thought she was dead? Was Absolutely. Ah, oh, look, this is bonus material. Everyone gets to go home and watch that film again. With a, a new actually, twist. Actually, partway through the movie, George Clooney comes back. Right? He's. You dead. don't know whether he's dead or alive, but he's sitting there. Has anyone here not seen it? Spoilers. Nah. Sorry. Well, sorry. We didn't do the spoiler. Anyway, anyway, I think it defies imagination that she could flit around in space with a fire extinguisher and go where she wants to go. And she can go from an American space station to a Russian station to finally the Chinese space station. Now, she's not a pilot. But when she gets in the Chinese space station, she knows exactly what buttons to push. And I say, no live human could do that oh i see so you're getting all uptight about the science and gravity space well, i love her fine <laughs> <laughs> ah, oh hi was there anything famously your eva is described as the deepest space yeah, yeah that's the first deep space eva which i yeah. think is extraordinary and no one's done one that far out since right well, two guys after me did. Oh, okay, sorry. 17 and 8, or okay. 16 and 17 did, yeah. But, um, so there are three that have done that. Uh, Simon? Simon would like to know, was there anything when you did that EVA that took you by surprise? No, not really. We had trained so extensive. Oh, I'll tell you. We trained extensively for that, and a lot of our training we did in what we call the zero-G airplane, which is an airplane that goes up in a parabolic arc, and, and they go to neutral gravity on the way up they, they they move the nose up and down so that you're floating inside the airplane I insisted on practicing that EVA in a zero-g airplane now you only get 30 seconds at a time but you put 30 seconds together with 30 seconds and you just keep on going so we're up there Dave Scott's uh, commander on our flights there Dave Scott's there Jim Irwin's there and we had our backup crews and all that kind of thing we had a big contingent of people so we did about 60 parabolas, up and down, 60 times. And Dave says, okay, uh, I think that's enough. Let's quit. And I said, no, no, I'm not done yet. I still got to train some more. So we did some more. We did 10 more. And then Dave says, well, it's time to quit. And I said, no, 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 I've got to keep going. We did 120 parabolas <laughs> that day, which was a world's record. <laughs> yeah. And I have, a, I have a picture of us with a flag with that on it. Nice. Standing in front of the airplane. Uh, so uh, that that was fun, but the underwater tank you can go through procedures, but you cannot test something like you would in space, Florida, the zero G airplane, because mass gets in the way. I had to bring back a ninety-pound canister from the camera, and the original idea to get that back into the command module was an endless clothesline. I would take a pulley on a on a staff. Take it all the way to the back, put the rod in, hook it into something, and th we'd have this endless clothesline. And when I first got assigned to the flight, and that had already been developed, and I said, I, I, I just don't think that's going to work. So they said, well, we've, we've practiced it, and we know, we know it's okay. And I said, where did you practice it? Well, we practiced it in the underwater tank. Well, how did you practice this 90-pound cassette in the water tank? Well, we had to make it out of Teflon, 
and we had to bore all kinds of holes in it to make it as neutrally buoyant as we could, but it worked fine. I said, okay, so you took an object that maybe weighed two pounds in the underwater tank, and you're saying that that's going to simulate 90 pounds in space. And they thought it would, and I said, you guys are full of, you know what. So anyway, I said, nope, that's not going to do it. So I, I insisted on doing it in a zero-G airplane. So we go up in a zero-G airplane. Before you love that plane, don't you? Oh, yeah, you I love, love that it. plane. Uh, we go up in a zero-G airplane, and I hooked up the line, and I said, there's going to be a problem. <laughs> be aware. Be, be ready for it. I hooked the camera to the line, and Jim started pulling it in. In space, you've got mass to deal with. You do not have a way of cushioning that mass. It's going to keep going one way or the other. There's nothing to stop it. So what happened about half the way back, this thing starts swaying back and forth sideways, and it knocked our reaction control system quad jets right off the side of the service module. The things that we needed for attitude and translation knocked it right off. That was the end of that. So they say, okay, well, what do you think we ought to do? And I said, oh, you know, I, I believe in the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. So I said, okay, let me just grab it and take it back in by hand. Well, we, yeah, that's, we, we're, we don't want to do that. That, you know, what if you let go? I mean, we'd lose it. I said, all right, I'll tell you what. Give me a little wrist tether with a hook, and I'll hook that onto the cassette. And if I lose hold of the cassette, it'll still be hooked to my wrist. Okay, so we tried that, and it worked like a champ. Come back, and the engineers are saying, well, we're still not quite happy with the safety of what you're doing. Oh, what do you mean? Well, we'd like to drill a hole in the hinge of the clip and put a pin in it so that the clip can't come loose. Okay, this is layer on layer. We do that, and it's, everything's fine. They come back the third time, and they say, we're still not happy with it. Oh, come on, guys. What do you want now? Well, we want to drill a hole in the end of the pin that goes in the hinge and put a cutter key in it so that the pin won't come out, the hinge won't come open, and you That's what I had to do in flight. This is, this is the kind of thing you've got to deal with. But this is, it's like all of you are being, like, they're annoying you, you're annoying them, but it's only because all of you want it to go really, really... Right, right. Oh, and yeah. We all want to do the right thing. Yeah. But the engineers that design these things, most of them have no flight experience. So they're trying to conjure something up in their imagination that they think will work. But it's got to be tried. It's got to be tested. You cannot do it. When you were doing your EVA, was that the first EVA that you'd done mm-hmm. in deep space? Because I have trouble remembering, like, even last week, I'll be honest, very vividly. I can remember things that happened and events. How vivid is your memory of being outside of the vehicle? I can hardly remember it now. Really? Well, it's been 48 years, John. Come on. <laughs> and I can't remember last week. Well, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I saw a movie 48 years ago that I don't remember either. <laughs> but I suppose that was it. It's like, yeah. How do you remember it then? I remember standing up on the uh, outside of the service module and looking around and seeing the earth and the moon up there in front of me. That's what I remember. And what did... I saw both. Yeah. And did, did you have a vivid thought, feeling? What did you... No, not at like the time. No, not at the time. Only Sorry. later when I got back home and I started remembering and thinking about it, did it become something that was really kind of gee whiz. 
And what do you carry now? So 48 years ago, what is it that you carry now from that experience? Because there aren't, like you say, there aren't so many people that have been in space. There's a couple of hundred now, I think, that have been in space, but only 24 of you that travelled that far. So, and I think that's why we all feel of you as being different in a in a really meaningful way from the perspective that you've had well what how i remember the program and and what went on and what the whole program is all about is that we were 48 years 50 years ago we were able to take that first small step out into space uh we retrenched from that afterwards and went into earth orbit stuff uh but the exploration theme is still there still alive so we're back into it again we're going to go back to the moon we're going to go back to the moon for a different reason, though. We're going to go back there to find out what, what it's going to take to live on the moon for six months. That's what we're going to find out. Uh, because we're going to need that when we go to Mars. The moon is one small step. Mars is the next step. The next step is going to be further, further, further. Until we find a place that we can migrate to. Because we're going to have to do that someday. If you got the call from NASA and they said, Al, we need to send some really experienced guys back into the moon... You've got a month to train. It's you and your Apollo buddies. Would you do it? Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, i got to tell you, yeah, a little side thing, John. Uh, I have been asked many times by people, uh, what kind of a crew should we send to Mars? Me. Let's get this to campaign me. going. I'll tell you why. I'm 87 years old. If I was 29, a year and a half flight in a small ca- spacecraft with a mixed crew would be kind of tough. <laughs> I'm 87. I can watch TV all day. <laughs> oh, I think it should be you and me. I think you, <laughs> okay. you and me together. Yeah, you'd, have to, you'd have to get on that funny suit, though. The, I would go, I'm wearing this. <laughs> this is what I'm going in. I won't last very long. Look, guys, uh, Al, it's been such a huge pleasure. We have to uh, tie this up right now. But I think you're, you're around this weekend, aren't oh, yeah. you? Yeah. So if you see, you know what Al looks like now. Uh, if you didn't before, he's a very friendly guy. It also, if he doesn't want to speak to you, you'll tell them, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> would you give a massive New Scientist Live round of applause, Al Warden? Thank you, Al. What an absolute legend. Al passed away just five months after this interview on March the 18th, 2020. Ad Astra, Al. It was a true honour to fly with you in the space shed. I hope you all enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you'd like to support us, please subscribe and consider leaving us a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on. It really does help. For more interviews with super cool space scientists and astronauts, head over to our YouTube channel. Just search us up there as Unlimited Space Agency and give us a follow on any of the social medias where we are at Unspace Agency on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Live from the Space Shed is an Unlimited Theatre production. This episode is brought to you in association with New Scientist Live and with support from Arts Council England. Special episode thanks to Valerie Jameson, Creative Director of New Scientist Live, Al's European Manager, Vic Southgate, Answer Flight Directors on the Ground, Anna Tuzinski and Sarah Webb, and Flight Dynamics Officer Sarah Reedman. Our sound engineer and editor is Andy Wood, and our theme music is Go by Public Service Broadcasting, used with their very kind permission. The show is produced for Unlimited Theatre by John Spooner and Alice Massey, with support from Sarah Webb and Javeria Khan. See you again for more Live from the Space Shed soon.